Father, we thank You that our sins were washed away, Lord, by the blood of Jesus Christ and how He gave Himself for us. And Father, we praise You and we thank You for that. Lord, without You, life has no meaning, no meaning at all. There's just simply a dark veil. But Lord, with You, a glorious light that shines on our hearts, gives us meaning in this life and in the life to come. We thank You, Father. We praise You this day through Christ our Lord. Amen. So anyway, today, uh, First Colony uh, Bible Chapel is going to begin a, a year-long series focused on loving God and loving others. And some of you may think, uh, you know, I've heard a lot of sermons about loving God and loving others, but uh, how can you speak on that for a year? I mean, really. And uh, so, maybe I can help in this way. When our grandson was here, Caleb, uh, I taught him how to move the pieces on a chessboard. But if you've ever played chess, you know that knowing how to move a piece on a chessboard... And playing chess is not the same thing. It's, it's really a remarkable... Chess is a, a simply uh, an amazing and remarkable game. White begins the game with a single move. And you only have 20 choices. That's all. 20 choices, that's all. But do you, do you know that by the fifth move, you have 4,897,200 and 56 possible plays. That's after the fifth move. This, by the way, is you, you see all this stuff about openings and closing, but you never see anything in the middle. See, that's where the genius is at, is in the middle. And that brings me to mathematician Claude Shannon. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but uh, I hadn't until I started looking this stuff up. But he arrived at what's called the Shannon number. And the Shannon number is the number that demonstrates the impracticality of doing chess with simply mathematical equations. The reason for that, in his game tree complexity, he showed that it was 10th to the 120th power, the number of possible games that could be played. Now, that's possible, right? So let's remove something. If you're a mathematician, you're going nuts right now. But if you're not, I'll give you some help here in a second. Uh, after you remove the, the illegal numbers, uh, uh, illegal moves, that is, it settles down nicely to about 10 to the 43rd power. So if you're not impressed, what if I told you that 10 to the 80th power, which is less than the possible moves, in fact, is generally regarded as the number of atoms in the observable universe. Okay, that's a bunch. That's a lot of numbers. So while it's not infinite, God only holds that. Uh, from the individual player's stance, it certainly is. I mean, world class, uh, even, even high school chess players, uh, they'll, they'll make moves that are incomprehensible to me, uh, yet... Uh, I like to think of the universe as being infinitely more complex than, than chess. So, praise God. Uh, if God makes a move, 
that you don't get, that's all right. He's, he's the one who's in charge. So don't, don't be surprised if you don't understand that. But we can always rejoice in Him. I tell you, I'm excited that we will be able to see just a few of the 10th to the 43rd power of the ways that God loves you and me. He loves us so much. And uh, it's not just the love that's within us, the love that He showers in upon us, but it's also the love that comes out from us and, and to others. And so as we begin to look at the possibilities of, of God's love for us and our love for others, we are immediately struck with two that don't make any sense at all, at least initially. And turn with me to Matthew 5, and we're going to read uh, 38 through 48. Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48 where we read, beginning in in verse 38, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard it said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So what we see in this text is a contrast between retaliation and the spirit of of love. Related to the first part in 38 through 42, the, the Pharisees had taken Exodus 21:24 and they were using it to justify personal vindictiveness. That's exactly what was going on. While the quote is accurate, Jesus is not redefining the law. And the reason I say that is because some argue that what Jesus was doing here was He was saying uh, that... Hey, that was the old way. Let me show you the new way. That was the old way of the law. I want to show you the new way of love. It's not true. It's not what's happening here at all. What he's saying is that the Pharisees had perverted the law to make it mean what they wanted it to mean. Where do, how do I come up with that? Well, Jesus gives us a clear indication in how they were misusing the Scripture When he follows this, he says, which we just read a second ago, Do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. It is what you do in response to insults and unfair practices. That's what he's he's talking about. So without going into all the details, because that would take a a while, and, and perhaps we could 
do that at some other time. Jesus, and hear me on this, bad theology has come from this. Jesus is not talking about criminal behavior. I want you to notice what He says precisely. If someone slaps you, now in today's world, perhaps that is criminal behavior, but it certainly wasn't then. And if that were so, my mother would have been locked up long ago. (laughs) Did you ever get slapped? Have you ever been slapped, really? Have you ever slapped somebody? It does happen. It's not criminal, at least not in my understanding of the word criminal. He's talking about if someone does something, if they force you to walk with them, which was a perfectly legitimate Roman law that you could do that, then so be it. That was not criminal behavior. What he's talking about is insults and affronts. And he was talking about those kinds of things that offend us. The real question here, and we'll get underneath this a little bit more so that it will become even clearer, is who is the one who is to execute judgment for these kinds of things? And the Pharisees were saying that if you have been insulted, you are the one who can uh, take justice on that. Is it ours or does it belong to the justice system? Does the, the real question here is this, for those especially who uh, enjoy reading in the Old Testament, does the Mosaic law conflict with Jesus' teaching about personal vengeance? The answer is no, of course not. Um, about 150 years ago, Albert Barnes, by the way, if you're not familiar with Barnes' notes, I recommend them to you. Uh, obviously, uh, older style of writing, but the theology is, is, is quite good. He wrote this about this passage. Christ finds no fault with the rule as applied to magistrates and does not take upon himself to repeal it, but instead of confining it to magistrates, the Pharisees had extended it to private conduct and made it the rule by which they were to take revenge. They considered themselves justified by this rule to inflict the same injury on others that they had received. The rulers of the Jews interpreted to mean that you can take personal vengeance on a person, justifying it by an eye for an eye law. Okay, so a little bit more background on that. Uh, I, the whole eye for an eye. Because on the first reading of this text... We read it the way the Pharisees read it quite often. If you hurt me, I have the right to hurt you back. And uh, that's not right. The interpretation fails in two primary areas. First, the history. And second, the law. First, history. One of the first things you learn, I think, even in elementary school, is the Code of Hammurabi. I don't know if you... Learn the code itself, but you learn about it. This is, and the reason for that is because uh, the standards of law that we have today, in the most general senses, are are based all the way back there, and followed up by the law of Moses. The purpose of the law is it only has one purpose really, to restrain 
violence. And it's, it uses a forcing function that ensure that the punishment fits the crime. Fairness. I mean, our law today is based on those ancient principles. But second, not only that history, but also the law itself. Lex talionis is what it's called. The law of the claw. The law of the talon. The law that was of, of the land. But even that was designed to be carried out by the court. You know, the ancient Near East was not chaos. It wasn't what we dream of when we think of the wild, wild west. The wild, wild west was not actually that wild. There were a few bad actors and that's it. And most of those had serious problems that stemmed from the Civil War and some other difficulties. But it was not chaos in the ancient Near East. They had courts. They had deliberations. They had punishments. They didn't just go out and string people up. It was all very deliberate. And there was a reason for that, and there was a reason for the law. Have you ever wondered why it's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? We think of that as law. It's really actually grace. It's really actually mercy. Because Have you ever been in a real fight? Have you ever been in a real physical fight? Or perhaps a real emotional fight? Because I'll tell you what we do. I'll tell you what we do. And you can sit there and say it's not what we do, but when you get into a real one, you'll find out that it is what we do. And that is, if a guy pokes you in the eye, you're going to poke him in both eyes. If, if he slams you to the ground, you're going to try to throttle his life out. Right? At least break an arm. I mean, you're going to, you are going to do more to him back, at least you're going to want to, than the original insult was. And we do this emotionally too. Ooh, you hurt me. Mm-hmm. You just wait. It's coming. Yeah. Yeah, one day you're going to open the door and it's going to be there. Yeah. And that's the way we are. Somebody bumps you, you push them. You know, somebody says something that's hurtful to you and we, we tend to slice back. It is, we're built that way. And, but, Ever since Adam and Eve, there has been things in place to keep us from going down that pathway. And that's why we have the law. That's why we have courts. Christ is not saying the law is wrong here. Christ is not saying that's the way it was, this is the way it is. He was not doing that at all. He was talking about an entirely different thing. Christ is not saying that when someone criminally harms you, you should not take them to court. That's bad theology. It's not what Christ is saying here. What Christ is saying is that you, as the individual, are not the arbiter of justice. You are not the judge, you are not the jury, and you are not the executioner. You are not the one to extract justice. You are not that person. You are to turn the other cheek. And that doesn't mean that you have no power, by the way. But it means that you're not going to start a blood feud over an insult, which is what happens. I mean, even in our country, we had the Hatfields and the McCoys, and it was stupid. Stupid. 
It was dumb. But we had it. Lots of people died. People get hurt. People separate from one another. People break fellowship with one another over the dumbest reasons. We have to have a way to come back from that. Immediately after that, we're faced with some of this as well. Uh, A scripture that was similarly uh, contorted, but this one was also distorted by the Pharisees. He says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Okay, so the Pharisees had taken this Leviticus 19 17 and 18. In Leviticus 19, 17 and 18, the Scripture says this, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, the, the reasoning is fascinating that the Pharisees had, and one can follow it quite easily. They reason that since the Scripture required that you uh, not hate your brother, right? That's what it says. And that you shall love your neighbor, then obviously, whom are, who are we supposed to hate? Right? Well, it was obvious we hate our enemy. If we can't hate our brother, who are we going to hate? I mean, it's, it's an amazing uh, thing. They were allowing themselves to personally seek revenge, to personally retaliate. Jesus is not denouncing the legal system, nor is He placing believers outside the legal system at all. He's calling for something more. He's saying that instead of retaliation and revenge, And vigilantism, which is what this comes to, we are called to love. Jesus' point here is that being a citizen of the kingdom, being a a disciple, means that you cannot be ruled by self-interest. You have to be ruled by something else, something more powerful. And that is love. I I do want you to note something back in Leviticus 19. And it's a fascinating uh, uh, phrase and it just shows you that you're not to be silent about these things and that you're not powerless. In fact, you're to own your voice. You're to speak your mind. You just simply do it in love. In uh, Leviticus uh, uh, 19, 17 and 18, you have that. it, It says, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor. I love that. Reason frankly. When the uh, Hebrew wants to emphasize something, they, they repeat the word twice. So you got this uh, wonderful word here, which is uh, yacha. Yacha. And so it's yacha, yacha, twice, right? And what that means is it's, it's the difference between killing and murder. So that you would say, and killing him, he killed him, right? And in this way, in rebuking him, rebuke him. That's what it means. Reason, frankly, uh, it has the notion of to reprove him, reprove. In reproving, reprove. In correcting, correct. In other words, we're not to... This is not, oh, 
you know, we take whatever comes to us. That's not what Jesus is saying here. And he knew that everyone in his audience had this text memorized. They all knew this. He was playing to this text, and they were understanding what, what he was saying. Jesus has no intent for us to lose our voice or to be passive. What he's saying is, you will not take vengeance. You will not be the arbiter of justice. He wants you to speak your mind in love. Okay, so what does that mean? It means that it's imperative, first off, that we understand uh, love as Christ meant it. Now, in the West, uh, we have totally demolished the word love. We can love chocolates and we can love pizza we can love football or hate it. We can love anything. We use it as like or love or, 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 or whatever. It's just a mess. And primarily when we use the word love, we are generally thinking about some kind of romantic interest, some kind of warm, fuzzy feelings, which, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying anything against that. I'm just saying that that's our primary thought. That was not Christ's thought at all. We've, we have turned it into a romantic notion. It revolves largely around feelings, but Christ doesn't mean it that way. He means it in the way of the Hebrew world view. He's talking largely about hesed. Okay, so hesed does and can have an emotional component, but not necessarily. Hesed does not revolve around feelings. Hesed revolves around what it is that you do. It, 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 it's centered entirely around action. And how do I know that? How do I know that Christ, in this reference here to love and loving your enemies, how do I know that's what He's talking about? Well, it's right here in the text. At least we have a firm clue looking right at us. In verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for He makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and send rain on the just and on the unjust. So how does Christ say that God defines love in this very text? It's because He does two primary things. He makes the sun come up, or the world go around, however you want to look at it, and He makes the rain to fall. And you know what? The Lord does not care, in, a, in this sense, whether you're an evil person sunning on the beach, or whether you're a righteous person sunning on the beach. You're both enjoying the benefits of the sun. And when the rain falls... It, it falls on people who honor God. And it falls on people who dishonor God. And that should really give us a clue as to what he's talking about. He's defining love as doing what is best or doing good for the other person, regardless of their status in your life. Whether they be your spouse or a child or someone you've never met, or an enemy, you do not do harm to them. You see? You do good. Those, and we're to do this to those who don't have uh, our good in their hearts. In fact, they may actually want to 
harm us. They may hate us. When we think of enemies, we primarily think of enemies of the state. Uh, When I think of enemy, I mean, my first thought goes to the war in Iraq because it was there that the the enemy shot down and killed my, my nephew Joshua. And I do not love them in the Western understanding of love. I got no warm fuzzies going on. And I don't think that Christ demands that of me. And I don't think He demands it of you either. But He does demand that I do good. He does demand that I do no harm. You know, maybe, uh, maybe the warm feelings will come later, perhaps in the next life. I don't expect them here. The enemies that Jesus was primarily referring to were the Roman soldiers. But when you look at the whole of Scripture, even in this, in this text, uh, there's also a closer, a more intimate target. People uh, in that day, like Matthew, which uh, he was a tax collector, he was reviled, he was hated, he was viewed as an enemy. And I think that Matthew, in this very text, wrote himself in there where he says even tax collectors do this, right? So he wrote himself in there as a sinner. And I love this in much the same way that the great uh, Dutch master Rembrandt painted himself in the crucifixion of Christ. There he is and he sees, look it up, he's got his blue beret on and he's, he's taking part in the crucifixion of Christ because he understood that he was a sinner. He understood that he was one who put Christ on the cross. You know, blessed is the one who knows he is a sinner. For in that knowledge, you are not far. We are enemies of God aside from Christ. But with that knowledge, we come very close to Him. Because it's through that knowledge that we then find Christ where we are no longer enemies, but we are now called His friends. But we have enemies that are neither enemies of God uh, nor enemies of the state. You know, because the truth is, in, in life, someone can proclaim love for you one day and be your enemy the next. Um, I don't know how often it's happened in your life. Perhaps not at all. You are fortunate it has not. But if a dear friend has become an, uh, an enemy to you uh, or so opposed to you that fellowship or the relationships no longer possible. I mean, thankfully in my life this has only happened twice, but it has happened twice. And even, even from 30 years ago, I found this holiday season reflecting on it a bit, and it still hurts. Isn't that amazing? It still, it still causes uh, pain. Now, there seems to be two ways that this whole enemy uh, thing, intimate uh, enemy kind of thing can happen. First, uh, you know, the person doesn't know you. But for whatever reason, they don't like you. And, and we all do this. There are people we meet and we say, you know what, I like that person. Why do you like them? I don't know. Just do. And then there are sometimes people we, 
we meet, we say, you know what, I don't know, I don't like that person. Why don't you, you like that person? I don't know, I just don't. And the problem is, is that people begin to make judgments and then they make actions based on those judgments that are based on nothing, based on thin air. And we do it, we, we do it all, all the time. And it may be that there's someone in, in your life that's like that. Maybe there's someone that you uh, think or know doesn't like you. Why don't they like you? I didn't do anything. What is I, you know, common to say when I was growing up? Did I, did I, did I harm you in another life? I mean, you know, what happened here? What is the deal? And you have this kind of uh, thinking that, that goes on. Let me, let me give you this spiritual discipline if you have that kind of a person in, in your life, okay? Smile at them. Speak to them when it's possible instead of uh, frowning. And it may be... It may be that they'll smile back. It may be that they'll begin to develop a relationship with you. It may be that they won't. But regardless, you'll be fulfilling the Apostle Paul's injunction when he said to live at peace with everyone in as much as it is possible with you. In most cases, these so-called enemy relationships, there's, there's actually no enemy there at all. It's just... People responding to misinterpretations and misunderstandings and and all kinds of things that begin to pile on one another. And the answer to that in verse 44 is Christ says, Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use and persecute you. So what we're seeing here is that the Lord is saying it's your response to that, that can change the dynamic. And certainly that's the one that He wants for us. Jesus wants us to control our reactions regardless of the other person's offense. And when our reactions are godly, that can reduce the heat. The second situation is a little more complicated. Actually, it's, it's a lot more complicated. And that is when this fractured relationship comes from a relationship uh, gone wrong. Now, some people may not like that I'm implying or that I'm actually saying that this person is an enemy. Uh, And yet, we we see in Scripture that that is, in fact, uh, the the case, which we'll see in just a few moments. You know, I think you're wrong in describing that person an enemy, I think maybe an alienated brother or something or whatever, you know, perhaps. But I want to remind you of this thing right here. If you're a police officer or ever have been a police officer, if you know any police officers, if you're related to police officers, you'll know that somewhere up near the top of their list of calls that they don't like to go to is domestic violence. Because you don't ever know what's going to happen. You don't know what's going to happen. The person is getting beat on, and then so you get them, and you try to get them, and then the person that was getting beat on then starts beating on you, and it's just it's just it's a it's a difficult thing. But they understand that people who once profess love for one another that can turn to hate, or at least it can turn to a place 
uh, where you're so emotionally engaged that you can't see straight. Uh, it reminds me of a little doggerel that I read uh, from Ireland. There once were two cats from Kilkenny. Each thought there was one cat too many. They fought and they spit. They clawed and they bit. Till instead of two cats, there weren't any. (laughs) So what's so dangerous about this type of situation? It's because they know us. It's because we've shared things with them. Part of our inner parts, they, they carry with them. And in a... Uh, 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 environment of hatred, they can they can use those things against us. It could be a relationship from school or, or work or family or friendship. And so the question is, what what happened to gain? But more importantly, what can you do? What does the Lord require of you? That's all we want to know ever is what the Lord wants of us. I mean, most of us default to the rationale, I'm the victim. I'm only responding. If they would be nice to me, I would be nice to them. It's that simple. The problem is theirs. It is not mine. That's, that's our default position. And, and while it may make us feel justified and let us look at ourselves in the mirror in the morning and be all happy, that's... Uh, it doesn't fit with Matthew 7:12 just a little bit later where the Lord says do unto others as you would have them do unto you when someone does something to us or says something to us we we have to act in ways that are counterintuitive i mean how many times have you heard it's countless for me Well, if I am kind to them, I just open myself up for more pain. No, I'm not going to do that. Okay. All right. You know, it's no no fault to to, uh, want to avoid pain. And and it's true. You uh, You may indeed have more pain, but it's only from that place that you can ever hope for reconciliation. It's the only place that's possible. This is what Christ is calling us to. Loving our enemies has always been God's will. In Exodus 23, 4 and 5, He says this, and this is why I have come to a more intimate use of the word enemy here in terms of people that we know, not enemy of the state, enemy of God, stuff like that. Because listen to Exodus 23, uh, 4 and 5. If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to take it back to him. Well, if he's talking about an enemy of the state, that ain't going to happen. Guaranteed, not going to happen. If you see the donkey, he goes on to say, if you see the donkey of someone who hates you falling down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure you help him with it. What an amazing thing. In Proverbs we're told, If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Now as I move toward the conclusion of this message, I want us to look at a verse and you can just listen to the verse. I'm, it's, 
It's Ephesians 4.32. And it says this, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. You see, it's only in forgiveness that we can be truly healed. It's only in forgiveness and love that we can begin to understand what it means truly to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. To be a disciple, you have to be able to understand these things. When I was, uh, first became a believer, there was a woman that I was fascinated with everything that she said and, and everything that she read. Uh, many of you will know her name. Many of you perhaps have never heard of her before. Her name was Corey Ten Boom. And she wrote a book called The Hiding Place. And in that book it described all the awful, terrible things that happened to her and her sister Betsy and others while they were prisoners in a, a Nazi concentration camp. And after the war, Corey struggled, really struggled with her hatred. Uh, she, hatred had built up in her, in her heart. And, and she kept putting that before the Lord and putting it before the Lord until finally she, it was, she felt that it was, it was gone. And, and, and then she became a, a, a very popular speaker. She became in demand and she helped thousands of people overcome the, the bitterness of the war. But then one day at one of her messages where she's talking about the love of God and how it's extended to all people and the forgiveness of Christ and how wonderful all that is. Uh, wouldn't you know, up comes to her uh, the guard who guarded the door at the showers. I'm not going to explain all of that. But let's just say that it brought everything back to her. He stuck his hand out and he said to her, Thank you for allowing me to hear the message that God through Christ has forgiven me. And his hand was out there lonely because no matter what she did or thought, her arm would not raise. She would not touch him. And so she goes through this thing in her mind about, Lord, I, I, I can't. All of this came back up in her and she was frozen. I want to read just a couple of things that she said. Even as angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin in me. Jesus Christ had died for this man Yet I was asking for more. Sounds like, sounds like an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. She prayed, Lord Jesus, forgive me and help me to forgive him. She, she tried to smile and she tried to raise her hand, but she couldn't. And so she breathed another silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. You must forgive him for me. 
And at that, she was able to lift her hand. And when she touched his hand, she says that a current flowed from her shoulders, through her arms, through her hand, into him. And she felt this amazing thing, which was, if the Lord commands you to forgive, along with the command, He gives the forgiveness. Along with the command, He gives the love. We are not that strong. We are not that powerful. This is God's promise to us If we seek to honor Him in loving our enemies, He will supply what we need. You can't do this on your own. I can't do it on my own. And it's still difficult regardless, but He is the one who will give this to you to heal the hurt, to fix that which is broken. But in order to have that power to love your enemies, you have to have God's love first. You have to have trusted in Christ's finished work on the cross, His death, His resurrection for you, and that is the only way of salvation. You must belong to Him. You must be able to obey Him. But He gives you all that you need. Father, we come before You this morning as we begin this new year. Lord, we want to learn and experience and help others experience the love of Christ. Lord, because that's the only place where love develops. It's the only place where it grows. It's the only place truly that is safe. So we thank You, Lord, that You have given us Your Word, Your Spirit. We thank You that You've given us Your Son. And it's in His name, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.